0: This is episode 42 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Leslie Rourke. She is originally from Texas, where she completed her undergraduate and graduate training. She has over 20 years of experience working in a variety of settings to include public education, acute care, pediatric and adult outpatient, skilled nursing, and home health. Leslie currently resides in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where she provides outpatient speech therapy services for multiple companies. Her special interests include optimizing nutrition and hydration throughout the various stages of dementia and providing fees testing. Leslie's career highlights include she is a graduate of ASHA's Leadership Development Program, a recipient of multiple ACE awards, an off-site clinical instructor for the University of Pittsburgh, a certified dementia practitioner, and a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to episode 42. That just sounds really random. 42. We've had 42 episodes of this podcast. That's pretty stinking cool. Um, I have a ton of energy today. I got 10 hours of sleep last night. I feel like a bajillion, quadrillion dollars. (laughs) <laughs> I have been insanely busy the last few months, and it feels good to finally be done with. I had so many presentations, and I've met so many cool people over the last few months, but I am just exhausted, so I'm so glad to finally be back home and getting some rest and got some awesome episodes planned for you guys, really interviewing a lot of great people coming up, so I'm so excited we're where this is going. A lot of good um, researchers coming up, so I know a lot of people have been wanting to hear more from the researchers. Um, so if there are any of you PhDs out there that have something to say, <laughs> let me know. I'd love to get you on here. Um, but yeah, I just got back from St. Louis. I was at the um, Barnes-Jewish Hospital in St. Louis with my buddy Vince, Edgar Vincent Clark, and uh, we were asked to present on... Um, Kind of some more advanced fee stuff, for lack of a better term. And it was called Beyond the Scope. And I'm actually really proud of how it came out. I think it came out so good. Um, and I've got to just say thank you to the girls that ever, they were all girls, so I'm not being sexist. Um, there was, I think we had three men in the crowd. So thank you to you men as well. But uh, the women that organized it, you guys were just awesome. So welcoming, so much incredible hospitality. We had so much good food while we were there. So, um, thank you guys. Such a well, well-run conference. So thank you so much. And yeah, I'm just really proud of how that came out. I'm I really proud of me and my buddy for throwing all of that together. But now that I'm back home, it's time to embark on some other projects. And last week we also did our first webinar with the Medical SLP Solution that was offered for ASHA CEU. So we had um, esophageal queen Julie Huffman. Uh, she presented a few episodes back can't think of which episode it was, but um, on esophageal dysphagia, and then we had her do a webinar for members of our Medical SLP Solution. So that was last week. So if anyone missed it, you can still join the Medical SLP Solution and watch the replay and get to EUs for it. So I'm excited that that's done and over with, too. So uh, moving on to planning more webinars in the future. Next month for June, we have Megan Sutton will be presenting on aphasia treatment, In July, we have Dr. Jamie Fisher talking about um, trachs, and then in August, Dr. Kate Krivel is going to talk about some voice therapy for us to do in skilled nursing, so I know a lot of times it seems like voice and swallowing are two, you know, two separate settings almost, which they're so much combined, (laughs) and Kate reminds me of that often, Um, but I know a lot of people aren't really assessing or addressing voice in skilled nursing and in other settings too, so Kate's going to come on and talk to us about that. So um, yeah, head to solution.com if you are interested in that. And I just wanted to mention quick all the weekly re- the weekly resources that we have coming out in the Medical SLP Solution. A lot of them have been dysphagia, kind of taking case history, cranial nerves, really how to do a thorough clinical swallow exam. That was all really just setting the ground in the beginning. And now we're expanding into a lot more Fun topics. Not a lot more fun. They're all fun, but <laughs> different topics. Um, and we've actually started talking about how to take a case history and how to assess for cognitive communication disorder. So I know a lot of people have been asking for more help with cognition and help is on the way. My friend's help is here. Uh, so that was what our resource was last week. And we've got probably a few more coming. We, I know we do have a few more coming, but, <laughs> um, and then we also have some more information coming about trachs, so the next few resources are going to be about speaking valves and what they can do for both speech and swallowing, because so we also have that swallowing component that we work with people, um, and also Dr. Kate Cribble who is going to do that August webinar for us, is going to put together some resources and some handouts about voice treatment, so I know personally voice is not my strong suit. I'm not afraid to admit it. I don't have a lot of training in it, but I would love to know more about it, so I'm so grateful that Kate is going to tackle that that daunting task for us. Um, So yeah, so all of those webinars that are coming up, the webinars are always uh, free to all Medical SLP Solution members, and they will be all registered for ASHA CEU. So head to medslpsolutions.com to get signed up. And I'm so excited for this episode. Um, This is Leslie Rourke. She's from Pittsburgh, and I had the pleasure of meeting Leslie a few months back at uh, one of... Dr. Eric Blicker's fees training courses and you know when you just meet somebody that you can just tell is so passionate about what they do and passionate about dysphagia and passionate about fees and you know Leslie was just such a such a talent such a joy to meet that day and so yeah her passion is is dementia other than fees and dysphagia but so this was such a good topic because I know so many of you have been asking for more information about dementia because it's just such an interesting condition and you know it's it's not we don't treat it the same not that we should treat any of our patients the same but it really is a whole different animal than you know stroke or brain injury Um, so I'm I was really happy that Leslie is going to um, tackle this topic for us today so today we are talking all about the assessment of dysphagia with dementia patients and then next week we will tackle the treatment portion so um, I hope everybody enjoys this episode. This week's episode is brought to you by the Medical SLP Solution Monthly Membership. What would it feel like if every week, delivered right to you, were resources that included videos and handouts about topics that affect the way we treat our patients every day? Well, that is exactly what the Medical SLP Solution Membership is. Every week, we send you a two to three page handout, including an intro, why, how, and instructions about topics chosen by the members including dysphagia, aphasia, dysarthria, pediatric swallowing, voice, just to name a few. They're all blind peer-reviewed by university professors because, well, we don't know the research as well as they do. The professors also usually add in some recommended readings if you want to dive further into that topic. I also record about a 10-minute video of that topic, so if you don't want to waste trees or if you don't have time to read, just get your weekly 10-minute topic in on the way to work. Some of the topics that we've covered include How to do a cranial nerve assessment, lab values that the medical SLP should be aware of, how drugs can affect dysphagia, how to complete oral care, the neural control of swallowing, infant driven feeding. So, lots of great topics that we've already covered. And our members also have access to an exclusive private Facebook group or private forum where you can post anonymously if you would like, which is run by experts in various areas of the field ready to answer your difficult patient questions. And if you don't have time to check social media or check the forum, no sweat. Every Friday, I email a weekly roundup of the resources for the week, as well as links to all of the excellent questions and incredible responses by our moderators. So if you missed a really great discussion, you can click right to it. No more FOMO. That's fear of missing out. So I provide all that to you every Friday. And this is all topped off with an exclusive monthly webinar for our community members. It also includes a Q&A session, and that will be accredited for ASHA CEU starting in May. So if this sounds like something you're absolutely interested in, whether you're a complete newbie to the field, you're a CF on Dysphagia Island, desperate for support, you're a mom of five kids with 20 years experience and no clue if you've kept up with the latest research, then head over to medslpsolution.com to join anytime. Good access to all of this for just $25 a month, but you may want to jump in soon because we are going to close down registration sometime in May to get ready for those upcoming CEU webinars. So don't delay. Join the community now and feel free to ask away. Hello, Leslie. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm
1: good. How are you?
0: Good. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I know this is such this is going to be a great topic to dive into. I'm really excited. So thank you for volunteering to talk about this with us.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. Um, So I gave a little blurb. I gave your bio in the beginning, but why don't you tell people who you are?
1: Okay. Well, my name is Leslie and I started out um, my career. I graduated in 1999. Um, I started out working in public education, loved it, thought I would stay forever, but um, somewhere along the way had a uh, just a strong interest in the medical field and, um, particularly working with adults. And so I transitioned, um, after I, well, I was an assistant in speech pathology for about four years while I was getting my grad. I was one of the first uh, assistants, Garland, Texas, where I'm from and did that all the way through graduate school and, uh, did my CFY in public education. Then, um, Worked with kids for a few years after that. Then I had my kids, took a couple (laughs) years off. And then I thought, you know what? (laughs) I think I want to transition to adults. And I did. I never looked back. Loved it. I've um, worked in pretty much every setting out there, acute care, outpatient, home health, private practice, and loved them all. And uh, But as time went on, got a particular interest in dysphagia, and particularly with the dementia population. So, um, over the past couple of years, I've become certified in uh, dementia and then also board certified specialist in swallowing.
0: Yes. So, and recently, about I, me. yeah, that's great. I, I love hearing the stories of how people's careers evolved, you know? And I think sometimes you talk to the like SLP assistants. I know a few, and they're like, I could never go back to grad school and make it work. You know, it's like, you can. Like (laughs) you can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. So and and I recently met you because you're diving into the fees world. So we're happy to have you.
1: (laughs) Hi. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, I love fees. Love. Always been a huge fan, (laughs) big supporter of instrumental testing in every setting that I've been in. I think it's critical. Um, I personally have not done Modifieds myself, but I got into the fees world and love it. And so I do it right now in outpatient in a hospital. And then also we'll be transitioning to mobile fees. Yay. We already started that transition, but we'll be doing full-time fees
0: um, this summer. Awesome. of speech. So very yes. excited. Yes. I know they're happy to have you. So glad that all worked out. So good. thank you. Yeah. All right. So let's dive into it. I know this is a super it's not not controversial because it's not controversial, but I guess misunderstood. You know, I think there's a lot of theories and thoughts about how we treat dysphagia and the dementia population. And kind of the more we've learned a lot more research and a lot more education, it's really not saying we've been doing things wrong. But, you know, once we know better, we we do better. Right. So. Right. All right. So I guess, you know, go ahead, Leslie. Where where should we start with this conversation?
1: (laughs) So as we talked briefly, you know, each thing that we may cover today, we could spend hours on just that topic. We could spend forever on talking about feeding tubes and end-of-life care, particularly with the dementia population. Um, We could spend time, you know, with assessment treatment. But I think what my goal today is, is just to get people out there thinking and about this. Because The dementia population is huge, huge, huge out there. And I, you know, as I said in my opening, I've worked in every setting and there has not been a setting where I have not come across a dementia patient and multiple, multiple in every setting. So, and I've also found that it doesn't matter whether um, somebody is a nursing assistant, physician, nurse, social worker. If you're working with adults in the medical field, you're going to work with dementia um, I, one of the statistics that um, I read recently is one in three seniors dies with Alzheimer's or another dementia. So that is huge. And yeah. so we are all gonna come across it. And so whatever part of the medical world you're in, I just hope that this encourages people to get out there, learn about dementia, get some education about it. It um, may not get as thorough. And every talk, there's so much out there um, education wise. And I think it will just really behoove people to um, get out there and and get your training um, because it's coming our way. It's already been coming our way and it's going to continue to grow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I love that. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of populations that we work with that I think we don't know enough about the actual, you know, disease progression itself. And then we're just trying to kind of treat this moving target, you know, and I think that's how dementia is. You really have to have a solid understanding of the disease progression itself before we can, you know, really come up with a solid treatment plan.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So I think
0: um, first we'll start with
1: just, you know, a basic understanding of what dementia is. Um, First of all, it is not a specific disease in and of itself. It's an overall term that describes a group of symptoms associated with a decline in memory or other thinking skills severe enough to reduce a person's ability to perform everyday activity. So dementia is a symptom. It goes along with any uh, multiple diagnosis like Parkinson's, um, Alzheimer's. Um, There's various ways dementia, you can get it a progressive dementia um, which would be in Alzheimer's. There's also acute dementia, which would be your vascular from stroke. So having a basic understanding of the dementia that you're dealing with when you approach a patient and you know that patient has dementia, educate yourself and understand what type of dementia. Is it progressive? Is it acute? Um, sometimes you may be the first one to even notice that a patient has dementia. I had a patient that was referred to me from a neurologist that um, was referred to me for concussion management. And indeed he did have concussions, multiple concussions from uh, multiple car accidents several years ago. Um, but he and his wife had never been given the D word. I would call it the D word for dementia. And I, at the time I had a graduate student and after we did our assessment and this particular patient mine was brilliant. He had multiple master's degrees. He was a professor. So I kind of knew what I was going to be getting myself into because after I did my testing and I did my staging, we'll talk about that a little bit on the global okay. <laughs> scale, um, we came across that he was definitely presenting with signs of dementia, even though he hadn't been diagnosed. So my graduate student said, oh my gosh, he didn't, You know, he's a professor. I said, we have to approach this very delicately. And it took about six months for him to finally get the diagnosis of dementia, but- I continued to work with him during that time. I still work with him as he and he's finally, he and his wife have come to um, the acceptance, I guess, of dementia, the dementia diagnosis. Um, But that's an example of somebody that came in that did not have the diagnosis. I was the first one to recognize it. I did my testing, I referred him to Neuro they did their testing. And in time, we all came on the same page. Now he's got a great treatment plan. I follow him as he progresses through the stages. Um, And it's, it's been a learning experience. It's been a good thing.
0: I think what you just said is so important. I think so many times we are the first person, we are kind of the first line of defense, basically, to suspect something, you know, so that's why I think it's so important for us to really understand these, these different, like you said, this isn't a disease, but these different conditions that our patients present with so that we can get them, you know, off to the appropriate specialists and get them the right help. So.
1: And sometimes even in acute care, you think, oh, you know, I'm not working in skilled nursing or outpatient, but that patient may fall at home and may have been falling. And now he's in the ER and now he's, you're seeing him for cognitive and you have to maybe put the pieces together and be the first one to approach that position and say, hey, I think this was related to a cognitive related dementia. Can we get the testing rolling? And then you can get that intervention started and get the family on board. So very, very, that's why it's so important no matter what setting to have an understanding, um, a basic understanding of dementia and yep. be able to spot it. So um, with that, I guess we can talk about a little bit about um, the importance of staging a patient. Um, particularly in skilled nursing and outpatient, you may not get that opportunity as much in more of an acute care setting, but understanding the global deterioration scale and before we can really talk about it in assessment and treatment, we have to understand what stage that patient is in. Um, working in I worked in skilled nursing for years and I've had patients in all stages, they typically show up in um, the skilled nursing setting when they're about a four. And that's when you're gonna start seeing the falls at home, forgetting to go to their appointments. They're just forgetting things a little bit more, maybe forgetting to turn the stove off. Falls are happening, forgetting their medications. They end up in the hospital then maybe a broken hip, and then they end up in skilled nurse. And then as you start diving into a little bit with the family, they're like, what do you know, Grandpa's fallen several times over the past month. And I remember now he can't remember his medication. Well, then we're going to start. But that gives me a good starting point. I know, okay, this is about the stage we're at. So this is where um, I'm going to start my testing. Now, with swallowing, it's important to really understand what stage, because if you have a patient in stage three or four, which like I said, that's more of the earlier stages in the global deterioration scale, you know this patient's gonna follow commands. You're gonna be able to get a typical bedside assessment probably for the most part. On the other hand, if you have a patient that presents five, six, they may not be able to follow his commands as well. Um, So that's gonna change your assessment. Okay, so given uh, just a quick definition of the global deterioration scale, so what is it? It provides caregivers an overview of the stages of cognitive function for those suffering from a primary degenerative dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease. It is broken down into seven stages. Stages one through three are pre-dementia stages. So this is when maybe um, the person, like I said, is starting to forget appointments can't quite keep up with the daily tasks going on, managing multiple different things. And so the patient that mm-hmm. I was talking about earlier that came to me for concussion management, he was at like a high three, low four. So just really struggling with keeping up with being a professor in the house duties and really um, even having some breakdown in communication at that point. Um, stages four through seven are the dementia stages. So beginning in stage five, an individual can no longer survive without assistance. Caregivers can get a rough idea of where an individual is at the disease process by observing that individual's behavior characteristics and comparing them to the GDS. So each stage. and like I said, we could spend hours just on the GDS. There are courses out there just for that you can certainly look it up in line. I think I gave you um, a copy of the global deterioration that anybody who's not familiar with that can go to and get. And I, again, no matter what setting you're in, print that off, have it with you, keep it on your clipboard. So when you're going into a patient and you start communicating, you're thinking something's off here. You can start looking at that and getting an idea. Maybe, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to get an idea of where the patient is in this stage.
0: Yeah. We'll link all that up in the show notes. So,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, like I said, the patient that I had came to me about a three, four, that was a couple years ago. He's now about a high, I mean, a high four, low five. Yeah. So each stage has a certain amount of time that's at, you know, the average expectancy. So you might be in stage four for three years and then progress to five and it might be a year and a half to two years. So we can move on to assessment now. Yeah. Uh, Dementia. So once you have an understanding of what phase they're in, what stage they're in on the GDS, then we're going to go in to talk about assessment. So you know what stage they're in. um, And so there are are ways you're going to be evaluating dysphagia, just like you are with anybody else. But I think what makes the dementia population so different is the fact, number one, that it is a progressive disease. So you're going to be reevaluating this patient if they stay with you, particularly in skilled nursing, I would have, you know, the quote unquote repeat offenders that I would come in. They might be a stage four. I'd get them, you know, where they were safe and efficient with swallowing. And that's my goal with each phase, keeping them safe and efficient as possible as they progress through each stage um, on the global deterioration scale with their dementia. So um, I might evaluate them, evaluate their dysphagia to stage four, get them safe and efficient, do all my education with the caregivers, discharge them. And then it's inevitable about a year later, hey, Mr. So-and-so is not chewing as well anymore, not doing well with their medications. I have to reevaluate them again. So that is one thing that makes this population very different when it comes It's not a one-and-done thing. They are ongoing if they're in a long-term facility such as skilled nursing. Um, So one thing that I like to do is I like to observe them in their natural setting, their natural feeding environment first and foremost. And like a lot of what we're going to talk about today is probably going to be a little bit more relevant when it comes to evaluating dysphagia and skilled nursing. So you're going to observe them in their natural environment because I like to get an idea of what's going on. You know, when a, pe- when a nurse comes and says, so and so, you know, is not swallowing their pills, I think they have a swelling problem, or, you know, they're, they're not chewing, everything's coming out of their mouth. I want to get an idea what's going on in the natural environment. So that's the first thing I do. After the chart review, is yes, I go, yes. I do the chart review, get all that. I've done my little interviews with the nurses or whoever's referred the patient. Now I want to observe that patient and see what's going on what kind of environment they're in. And that's going to be critical as well. Um, what's the lighting, like? Right? You know, people with dementia, they respond differently
0: to lighting and sounds and noises. I think someone mentioned that to me recently about the lighting and I didn't, I had no idea about that. And then when I saw your notes come through, I was like, what the heck? So yeah, yeah I'm so glad we're yeah. having this conversation because that was something that I didn't
1: know about either. So uh, yes, yes. So I had a I had um, a patient referred to me a few years ago when I was working in skilled nursing and the nurse had approached my director and said, you know, this patient has swelling problems, he's not swelling, His pills, you know. And so of course speech gets the referral and my chart review and talk to the nurse and said, Okay, so I thought, well, I'm just gonna come watch him during pill time and see what's going on. So sure enough, I go in there and he's getting pills in the middle of the hall. There's all this noise, screaming, it's a memory care place, you know, things going down the hall, loud sound. And the nurse is just kind of trying to shove the spoon in the mouth, like, swallow, 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 get it in there, you can do it. And, you know, that was never going to happen for this gentleman. Um, it wasn't her fault, but it's just she had not been trained on how to provide medication, nutrition, hydration to a dementia patient. So, My approach with her, that particular situation, he could swallow pills, but we had to adjust the way it was presenting. We had to train on the behavior of the the patient, train her, and then we got him to where he was swallowing his pills. So observing in the natural environment is so important. Um, It is, yes. Dementia, just because they have dementia does not mean they do not have preferences. They don't have likes and dislikes. They do. So very very important um, to observe them in their natural setting and take notes. Get an idea of what's going on. What's the lighting like? Is there music? Is there not music? Who are they sitting next to? Maybe they don't like that person. <laughs> what about their food? Okay, has, have we all seen the pureed globs on the plate? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Art in little nice little gel sections. You know, they're just kind of all thrown together. Well. And for one that would not be very appetizing but yet we expect so when we make that recommendation for pureed food we expect oh they're going to love it because they have dementia they're going to eat it and then we're like shove in the food in their, the pureed in the mouth yeah so i take note of all of that
0: i once had a i had a supervisor tell me that patients with dementia don't recognize pureed food and i was like okay that's interesting and, you know, obviously I think, you know, now we it's a little more complicated than just that blanket statement, but it got me thinking like, oh, hey, crap. Like I'm just putting, you know, it, in my younger years, yes, I would just put someone on a diet without doing the full evaluation or thinking of all the factors that may be involved. So I think kind of hearing that really made me think, oh, crap, you know, what I'm doing really can be impacting the reason that they're not eating or drinking,
1: Right. And I've done that when I think about my early years, especially when yeah. I transitioned from public school to, you know, that those early years, I just cringe sometimes, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of like guilt and I gotta forgive myself for what right, I did. Right, right, right. And think about man, you know, what if I had done this or what I've done that? But you know, when we know better, we do better. Yeah, That's absolutely. But I hope um about this podcast today is just getting people thinking in a different way. Um, so pureed, yes. When we make that recommendation for pureed and honey thick, we really have to think about what is that going to do to this patient. And just because they have dementia doesn't necessarily mean. And understanding the stage, when they're at a six-seven, they're probably not going to recognize the dementia, but they can they can still taste. Maybe they don't like it. They don't know it's pureed, but it's in their mouth, and they know, hey, I don't like this. It's coming back out. So. We really have to evaluate them and, you know, evaluating the family members too, you know, what kinds of foods do they like? Culture is huge, you yeah. know, Asian, Indian, what culture are they? What kinds of foods do they eat before? You know, if they're, you know, a different culture, you know, Hispanic, I worked in San Antonio for, for several years, about eight years, and that's a big Hispanic population and love tortillas and, and those kinds of foods. And then you give them, this mashed potatoes and pureed stuff, you know, no. So culture, that's again, a whole nother subject for another day, but it is important to know your patient, to interview their family, um, understand what they liked, um, do your assessment in their natural feeding environment. And then um, if they're appropriate, you're going to go ahead and do your bedside evaluation. And again, what stage you're on is going to depend on, how much you can do that. I love it when um, I was working in skilled nursing, my grad students would come in, you know, with guns blazing, with their little toolkits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do my oral back exam and they have their tongue depressors and their flashlights and I just kind of giggle, like, okay, let's go. Yeah, We're talking about, you know, on the later stages of stage five, six, maybe a seven and they're ready to go and then they, okay, open your mouth and nothing happens. I just right. look at you like... We're not going to open their mouth. So what are we going to do at that point? And every patient um, is unique in their own way. Absolutely. So we can probably get them to open their mouth, maybe not at a stage seven when we're at the very end, but we have to figure out how to get them open their mouth. So that is where dementia from other areas like stroke, even traumatic brain injury, um, they can open their mouth most of the time with dementia. It's figuring out how to do that. Um, Here's an example. So I got called in a couple of weeks ago, uh, home health, to do an evaluation of a patient who had a choking episode and um, went to the hospital, that's their protocol. So they got the food ejected, patient was fine. They went to the hospital, they came back. So then I got the call, you know, can you come evaluate this patient? We know they're towards the end stage dementia but we're wondering if they need to be hospice or not. Can they eat and chew? Can she eat and chew and swallow So I go in and do my evaluation and the caregiver's like, well, I, you know, I think it was a one-time incident, but you're never going to get Miss So-and-so to open her mouth. And like, she's not going to do that for you. It's a miracle if you can get it done. So I say, okay, thank you very much. I had my little soft cookies because I know one of the things that um, people with dementia, particularly in later stage, they love sweet. So I have my soft cookie and I knew that she had been on a soft diet um, and then like what's prior to this choking episode. So I go in and so this is just kind of give you an idea of, of how I affect patient. I go in, particularly with the end stages. It was mostly nonverbal communication. She is not going to understand my communication. At, she's about a six on the on the dementia scale, five, late five, early six. There was no way she was she was going to really understand what I had to say to her. So I knew that going into it. So I go into her room. I say, hi, I'm so-and-so in a very calm voice. But then after that, it was pretty much nonverbal. Once I had her up, I get a cookie because I'm going to demonstrate and model for her how to do it. Give her the cookie. I'm not talking, telling her what to do. I put the cookie up to my mouth. She puts the cookie up to her mouth. And now we're either. It was... Uh, very simple, easy. I modeled for her what to do. Once she had that cookie up, it was an automatic. Now she knew once the cookie was up and in her mouth, chewing her curd, swallowing her curd, everything was great. So I knew watching her, I gave her the cup. I didn't say, okay, I want you to pick up the cup now and take a sip. That wasn't going to work for this patient. I said, I just grabbed the cup, gave her the cup. I got my cup. And we drank together. I drank mine, she drank hers. Beautiful, no overt signs and symptoms of aspiration. Um, chewing was great. So I did that, wrote my assessment. Yes, she can chew and swallow, went back and talked to nursing. And then there was another nursing staff at the time and she said, well, you know, I think her choking was because she reached up her and grabbed her friend's regular hamburger and shoved it in her mouth. I said, yeah,
0: well, I you know, think, that just may have had something to do with it. Cool
1: you know, what was part of my treatment with this patient? Am I going to see her for exercise? Or no, that was it. I did my evaluation and then guess what? Boom, I jumped to caregiver training. Okay, we need to make sure Miss So-and-so is not sitting next to Mr. So-and-so with the regular food. Um, And just because she's at this stage in the doesn't mean she's not going to reach over and grab somebody else's food and put it in her mouth. Because number one, she probably doesn't really know she can't have that. And the impulse is, oh, I see it. I want it. I'm going to put it in my mouth. So that was my evaluation. That was my treatment of that patient. And then I was on. Um, followed up, she's doing great.
0: Good. Can I back you up a second? Why, why is it that patients with dementia uh, like sweet food? Do you know the answer to that? It is, it is one. I, in my
1: training, it is just the last thing that we hold on to. It's something they can taste. It's one of the last taste sensations that we hold on to.
0: So Interesting. Yeah, I had heard that from somebody else too, and I was like, oh.
1: Yeah, so they love sweet. And I honestly don't know if it's just because they can taste it more and they don't taste other flavors as much, but I will tell you I have yet to work with a dementia patient where they did not prefer sweets over anything
0: else. All right. (laughs) (laughs) There's this one facility that I go to that has... They, like, specially make those, like, oatmeal cream pies. They, like, home make them. And every patient, like, woofs them yeah. down all the yeah. time. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to just take one for the road one day because <laughs> they look so dang good. And all the patients are always eating them. I'm like, what is this facility doing that all these patients are eating these all the time? You know, half the time you go around and see graham crackers half eaten, you know all over the place, but there's, there's nothing ever left of these oatmeal creams. So cups. I always have my bag little <laughs> soft cookies or works like a charm every time. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, let's talk a little bit about, you do your evaluation, you do your bedside and you suspect aspiration. The A word. Jeez, oh my a gosh. Word. Which, you know, again, is a whole nother <laughs> subject for another day but you suspect aspiration. Yes. And yeah. depending again, this, I'm going to always go back to staging your patient because understanding where they are on that stage is going to play a part in the bedside evaluation. And then it's going to play a part in your recommendation for instant rental assessment. And any of us who worked in the modified barium swallow world or the fees world will know that when you get a dementia patient, it's a whole different ballgame. And i you know that Teresa, you yeah,
0: and me. absolutely. It is. It is. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a whole different ball game, but I think that's exactly what it, it is. It is. is. It's a different ball game. You know, I and I, I know that everyone hears me say this a million times, but nothing makes me more angry than when people right. write off their patience. And even last night, someone commented on Facebook on one of my business posts that they understand that fees is important but they would never put their patients with right. dementia through it. And it was just like I, you know I'm like do I just delete this comment or do I want to <laughs> sit and you know have this conversation with this woman who clearly has a wall up and can't understand that perhaps this is a different ball game and there may be ways to get it done. And I do fees all day every day on patients with dementia and as you said it's a different ball game but it's a game, it <laughs> so.
1: And so understanding um, your patient, where they are, um, you know, if you are providing a mobile fees and you're working in nursing facilities where there's an SLP who referred this patient to you, that's awesome because now you can get with her and collaborate. Um, but that may not be the case. You may be the one, the first one, you know, on your caseload in acute care where now you're like, okay, I need to refer this patient have a modified. Um, So what do you do? So understanding where they are in the stage and then understanding, you know, not every dementia patient is going to be appropriate for modified, not every dementia patient is going to be appropriate for fees. So having an understanding of each test, I think is really important. If you have access to each test, a lot of places don't have access to both tests. Um, So when I will just share, when I had a patient, when I was working in skilled nursing facilities and I had to send them out for a modified First thing I did, of course, was stage them, look at their environment, do my bedside evaluation, and then determine which test is going to be appropriate. Can they follow commands to participate in the test? That's going to be very important because if they can't follow commands and you send them for a modified, it may not be successful. You know, if if the SLP has an understanding of dementia, she has the time, but this patient might... Require 10 minutes of coaching to participate in the exam. Um, and I, I'm, at first, when I first got into the fees world, I was one of those Larry about fees with the dementia. So I'm thinking, I don't know. And then I went to my training in Nashville with Michelle Ashford and followed her around for a week and really was impressed with how she just knew and got these patients um, with dementia, even a stage seven. I about died how is this possible? How are we doing it? And you know, what was amazing is yeah. we did the feast test on this stage seven dementia patient. And I could not believe she actually had a fairly normal swallow. We were like, That's,
0: you know what, that's what I find. Yeah. and And I even recently had a medical director of a facility call me in to see her personal friend. And she said, you know, this has been a family friend, you know, really advanced age. There's close to 100. And she said, I just hate to see her in this condition, but I just don't really think she's having issues with aspiration. But the, you know, nurses keep saying she's coughing, she's choking, she's having all these issues. And so I end up, you know, I did the fees. Swallow was beautiful, but like you said, we just had to do some caregiver training and they had her fully reclined in the jerry chair as they were <laughs> shoveling the food in so um some positioning changes and some caregiver training and you know the medical director called and said i can't believe how much she's eating and drinking now and you know and and that's, that's why i just like i said i'm beating a dead horse but please exactly. do not write off your patients
1: give them a chance, give them a <laughs> chance that <laughs> i thought there's no way This patient, like I'm talking nonverbal, yeah. I'm not even sure they were aware I was in the room. And then, nurses, you know, nurses feeding that patient, they are feeding that patient. I'm not talking about an MPO patient, we're talking about somebody who's getting three a day every day, right? And I'm thinking, how is this even happening? And but again, with dementia, they still maintain those automatic responses, so automatic swallow is still going to occur. Um, so Doing the ones that I thought, you know, no, there's no way, beautiful swallows. And then I will tell you, the harder ones are your fours, your stage, your middle, you know, those early stages, not the pre-dementia, that early four, um, maybe four to early stage five, those are going to be the hardest because those are the ones that have awareness of what you're doing and they still have pretty good sensation. So, um, they know enough to understand, Oh, I don't like this. So those might be the more challenging when it comes to fees. Maybe those are the ones you said.
0: Yeah. And that's usually what I say is, yeah, some of those advanced ones have no sensation at all. You know, so it's like, I get the scope in, you know, and, and even their caregivers, like, I can't believe they're tolerating it. And it's like, I don't think they realize that it's even it, you know, they barely have that sensation, but you know, like you said, the, the more challenging ones, like the fours, those are the ones that I really make sure we have someone that, you know, whether it's a CNA or a family member, someone that they do, you know, still recognize and that they, you know, can communicate with. Those are usually the ones that I really make sure we have someone else there to kind of help help me coach right, them. Right, right. Exactly. Through.
1: So, of course, with this, dimension, with this population, you're going to do your instrumental assessment if it's needed uh, in any way possible. There may be those cases, though, where you just cannot, you, you can't get them to modified or, you know, you don't have fees accessible. I think in those cases, you have to just use your clinical judgment, everything that you have acquired and understanding about dysphagia, and particularly with dementia, you know, the patient, this, the patient that I gave an example on earlier where I got called into um, the nursing facility it was, it was uh, like a personal care facility, so they didn't have an SLP on site. So each one of these residents are personal care. Um, there was no way. They didn't have, they didn't have fees in the building. Um, there was no way this, this patient would participate in a modified. Okay. So I had to go in there and use every ounce of knowledge that I have and understanding dementia and dysphagia, do my clinical bedside. Fortunately, in that case, we got everything. I saw her with liquids. I saw her with solids was able to make recommendations and she's doing great. So obviously the the best case scenario is that we want to get that instrumental assessment when it, when it all possible, just like with anything else, stroke, traumatic brain injury, anything else, dementia is no different with
0: that. And just a quick thank you to our sponsor, EndoHD. They're a true high definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies. They combine cutting-edge technology with clinician-inspired devices and phenomenal customer service to make some of the best imaging devices in the country. With fully automated archiving with zero downtime, intuitive software with one-touch recording, immediate fee study review with a very easy-to-operate fees equipment. If you're interested in learning more, www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee system requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demo. But
1: I think... You know, going back again, what does make a difference is understanding that sometimes it's not dysphagia, it's just behavior, you know, and, and understanding that you may get called in for a dysphagia evaluation, but it may be, they don't like that food. They don't like their environment. Um, Maybe the way the nurse is presenting it. So sometimes we have to go in, you know, with an open mind and look at all of those areas to determine, is it truly dysphagia? Yep. Or is it more of a communication, cognitive behavior breakdown that we need? So do we still, are we still involved at that point? In my opinion, yes, because our jobs, we're the experts on getting nutrition and hydration into this patient. So we don't just stop and say, no, it's not dysphagia. It's, it's a cognitive. So maybe we need to do some cognitive training. Maybe we need to do some caregiver training because the goal is to get this patient to eat. Okay. They can swallow, they don't have dysphagia, or maybe they just have mild dysphagia. So how are we going to optimize that nutrition and hydration? What do we need to do? We don't just stop after evaluations with this population. We have to continue going forward. And um, I think I said somewhere in my notes too, that you know, dementia, it takes a village to treat dementia. It's not a one man show. So when you go and observe, maybe this patient is not getting occupational or physical therapy. So maybe it's a positioning issue. I've had multiple patients where it was a, you know, just as much of a positioning issue as it was dysphagia. So collaborating with your OT, maybe it's the utensils that the patient's using. Because one of the things, when I worked in still nursing was weight loss. Oh, Mr. Jones has a 10 pound weight loss in four weeks, has dysphagia, yep. <laughs> What's yep. Going yep. On? Yep. you know what I'm saying? Yep. And it wasn't really dysphagia, it was, well, he can't reach the utensils because the table's too high or look at him in his wheelchair, you know? Um, Or maybe it takes him an hour to eat and he's only got 15 minutes because we need to hurry and get that patient fed and get on to the next one. So collaborating with your OTs, collaborating with nurses, physicians, PTs, social workers, everybody on board. And if you're the first one, which I have been many times, the suspect dementia, it's important to get everybody on board and get that team going, um, do your assessment, do your evaluation, but then also collaborate. Yeah, yeah I love that. So let's talk, I don't want to talk too much about feeding tubes. because That's okay, we can. That, that's <laughs> a whole other can of worms, but because, you know, it is something that does come up, I would say just about with every dementia patient at some point, if a patient has progressive dementia, um, it is going to progress, hence progressive. And so you are going to, that patient is going to eventually get to that stage seven. Yeah. They're going to get to that place where they don't accept food anymore. Yeah. Um, they're not swallowing safely. Um, so the conversation is inevitably going to come up about feeding too. I will say um, 10 years, 10, 12 years ago when I started out this, um, sadly, it was like aspirating, not eating, feeding tube. You know, I was kind of coming in on the tail end of that. And I remember wheeling my patients on because I'm from Texas and we have uh, mobile modifieds. So that's where I kind of got my early instrumental training and in observing those. And I, it was really great because I could collaborate just like Fees Mobile does. And I'd wheel my patient on. And, and it, it was usually one of two things. Either they wouldn't eat at all. Okay. Or they would, they would get it in their mouth and then they would aspirate. And then it was like, okay, NPO feeding tube. Yeah. You know, particularly on Friday afternoon. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, yep, NPO yep. feeding tube. You know what I'm saying? Yep. That just when I think about that, it just makes me so sad thinking about all of those patients and what the research suggests now with feeding tube, that it does not particularly. I will just focus on the dementia population. Research does not support that it extends life. Um, in fact, it could harm the patient.
0: Yeah, I know we had, um, Dan Weinstein was on episode five, I believe, and and he discussed this at like, that I know so many people were like, what? And I think it's like within six months, a patient with dementia with a feeding tube, that's the life expectancy. Um, Yes. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah.
1: Well, yes. Um, Reviewing what, you know, the research related to the feeding tubes and dementia um, information that I found studies have shown that two things do not prevent aspiration in some cases may increase aspiration. Yeah. And we know that from, I know you've had speakers on here. We've talked about that. Of course, um, I love Dan Weinstein and, uh, of course, Dr. Ashford and the of three quarters of aspiration. Yes. Yes. Um, and then, uh, the belief that withholding food and hydration causes suffering is not supported by research. And I think that is critical when we're talking about dementia. You as an SLP are gonna be part of a team, and again, whatever setting you're in, um, but particularly in the skilled nursing, assisted living, outpatient, where a family member is going to probably approach you at at some point and say, oh, my mom is starving, she's not eating, we need to get that in. And so it's really more about them than it is the patient. As the body begins to shut down, that patient with dementia is not sensing hunger is not sensing thirst. They're losing sensation. Um, so they're not suffering, but the family member thinks they're suffering, you know? And so what do you do at that point? You know, they're not eating enough to sustain weight or B, they're aspirating and, um, and it's not safe anymore. So what do you do? I think that's very, um, it, as speech therapists, we need to stay out of judging and stay away from providing our opinion. That's I know um, Dr. Paul Leslie at the University of Pittsburgh has some great stuff out there, and she has been my inspiration. I'm interviewing um, her. her right after you, so. Oh, I love her. <laughs> mm, I yeah. did it. I've done some off-site um, clinical instructors for graduate students at University of Pittsburgh, and so I've seen her on occasion at grand rounds and. Wow, yeah, Jean, just so smart. And so I, I'm not even gonna do her justice by talking about her stuff probably, but she's very passionate about in-stage yeah. and feeding tubes and has a really a strong opinion about what the SLP's role, what's in our scope of practice. And what I've taken from her and then also from my clinical experience, I just think we need to keep judging out of it. We need to keep our opinions out of it our job is to provide recommendations based on a comprehensive evaluation evidence-based practice and leave it for the team we are one component of a team now back in my day early days you know the SLP had a lot more control in recommending MPO whether it was a modified or fees but where I am now on um, my job in doing all this fees, wonderful fees training that I've been doing with some amazing mentors and learning that the goal, that what our goal is, we want to get recommendations and it's, we do our comprehensive evaluation, we put our evidence-based practice, we make those recommendations. And then what the family chooses is their choice. Absolutely. That is between them and the physician. Absolutely. So, but touching based on the research, it doesn't support extending life in and it does support that it could in fact be harming the patient. Yeah. And I know that none of us ever want to harm. it. I certainly in those early days been part of the thinking that feeding tube extended life. And so we want to help the patient. We don't want them to die. We're not ready. And the family's not ready to accept that. Um, but when we know what the research says, um, we have to look at that and then we have to make recommendations based on based on that. And so Um, Then there's the quality of life issue. You know, I think working with families over the past few years, a lot of them are a lot more research savvy than in my, you know, 10 years ago, and they're out there looking at this. And I see patients, dementia or not, that are just grossly aspirating, Um, but they don't get pneumonia in the family or the patient whether it's from a stroke or traumatic brain injury, I do work with a pretty large traumatic brain injury population um, in some group homes here. And most of them aspirate. And none of them, I see eight patients, none of them are on feeding tubes. Um, But it's the quality of life. A lot of these Mm -hmm. are are young people, but the family says, you know what? No, I want grandpa to eat what he wants to eat. And so Mm -hmm. it's not our place to judge that and to just Mm -hmm. say what we think is safe
0: and move on. I just recently I had a, I have a friend who's a, she's a DOR and and she called me and she's like, I just need your opinion about this situation. I'm so torn. We have this patient that's been here for almost a hundred days. They're, you know, Medicare A is about to be up and they're going to go home at the end of the hundred days. The patient's been doing great. You know, it takes, takes the patient quite a, you know, a long time to eat, maybe 45 minutes to an hour, but you know, weight's been stable. You know, everyone thinks it seems to be great. We have the discharge planning meeting today and the SLP, all of a sudden comes out and recommends NPO because she says that the patient's not getting enough nutrition, that she's not eating fast enough, and that she doesn't think she's going to get enough nutrition when she goes home by just spending an hour eating. And I was like, okay, I'm going to reserve my judgment. I don't know the entire case, but okay, so the SLP made this crazy recommendation. What does the family want? What does the physician want? And Mm -hmm. the DOR said, they both said whatever they think the SLP thinks is great or is best. Yeah. So now this patient's scheduled to get a peg on Monday to go home. Oh, and I oh, just was oh. like, I, ah, like, yeah. I, I it's great that they give us the power to make those decisions, but we, we can't make those decisions. Like we shouldn't be allowed to, I, like you said, it's, yeah. our, it's our recommendations. And then the family and the physician need to have these meetings and decide what's going to be best overall for this patient, because you know, it seemed like I said this patient was seemed to have been doing fine, taking an hour to eat the meal, and weight was stable. You know, she was happy, family was happy, but oh, I don't. That one just eats me alive. So, yes, it's it's. So <laughs> and I kind of was just hard. like I don't know. Tell her to listen to my podcast. I don't know what to. T- I I don't know what to tell <laughs> you. I, I, like, <laughs> you know, I'm like I'm not gonna step on somebody else's toes. I don't know this person, but I I that goes against everything I believe in. So. It it does, you know, and I think with fees, um, I had a
1: patient, he had a stroke, nobody knew that going into it. Um, he was a walkie talkie, if you will, and came in. And it was just I nobody knew it was completely silent. I'm talking silent, not one single sign. And he had been working with speech therapy for two months. And um, no clue this was going on. until I got the, the camera down there. But you know, he didn't have dementia he had stroke, but he's an example. I showed him right there, this is what's going on. I showed his wife, this is what's going on. So what did I do? I showed him he's aspirating. I did my education and I, you know, told him, yeah, safety-wise, it's it's going into your airways. But then I also utilized what I knew about aspiration and the risks for developing aspiration pneumonia. And I also knew that he was very active. He his cognition was intact. He was brushing his teeth. He had good oral care. Um, and he had been aspirating for several months and had pneumonia. So again, I used my clinical knowledge, put it all together, educated him, provided recommendations regarding how to stay safe, because there was no way this man was going to get a feeding tube. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, and I've had multiple patients like that. But it, you know, was, I didn't feel like it was my job at that point to say, you need a feeding tube. I also educated immediately his physician and said, this is what's going on. He is grossly aspirating. He does not want a feeding tube. So am I going to stop treatment? No. I said, we're going to get in. We're going to get some good treatment going. We're going to develop that plan of care. We're going to get treatment going and we're going to stay as safe as we can. But that was a team decision.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think that's get- what's, you know, sometimes we just have to remove ourselves and say, we're here to treat the swallow. You know, that's what, right. What this patient does, what this patient you know, cause we can, sure, we can say you should really be on puree and honey, but are they going to go home and do that? They may say they are, but we have no freaking clue, right? That's right. So, exactly. I mean, our job is to just, we're not the diet police. We have to treat the swallow. And, and like you said, if you've got a patient that's willing to work, then that's a dream come true for us, you know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's my spiel on the defeating. That's okay. I <laughs> like I said, we're we're still beating a dead horse because there's still people out there that aren't getting it. So I'm gonna keep beating this dead horse. I'm sorry for this horse. But <laughs> it's gonna pop up. If you're
1: working with patients with dysphagia in whatever area, um it it's it's gonna to pop up. So it is, I think, an ongoing discussion. Thank you, Teresa yes, for yes continuing to beat that dead horse. Yeah. yeah.
0: So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming.